0: Hello, my beautiful, beautiful, shiny, godlike brainstem friends. I hope you're doing magnificently. It is November the 14th, 2010, another day of deep joy just to be alive. So cute. So, um, a couple of days ago, it was really foggy in the neighborhood. And I took Isabella out because she had never seen fog, at least not, you know, while she was sort of conscious. And so I took her out and I said, Isabella look, it's so, it's very, it's very foggy. And she said, yes, Dada is very ribbit. <laughs> Which I thought was very cute. Because, you know, froggy and foggy do sound a lot. And I thought that was just really, really funny. It is very ribbit. And you know, the funny thing is, though, is that uh, kids can, it's like, it's like a combat of whose language is going to win over whose. So, of course, for the rest of the day, I was strongly, strongly tempted to refer to the, uh, the weather as it's very ribbit outside. And uh, I, <laughs> it's really, really, really tempting. She has better words for things than, than I do, uh, or that the English language does. And really, we should all just speak Isabella, right? So her, she says her own name is Abia, although she's getting better than that, uh, better at that. Uh, and it's a much better name than Isabella. Uh, uh, grapes used to be bagai but now they're grapes. Spiders are still Beedabo. And uh, that, I think, is a great – because it sounds a little bit like a spider would sound when walking across bubble wrap. And uh, watermelon is menino, which is much, much better because it sounds like watermelon with a Spanish flair, which uh, a really watermelon should have. And uh, anyway, it sort of goes on and on. But uh, it is just – yeah, (laughs) that's right. Uh, You know, they had um, – in Prohibition, they had speakeasies. And in this house, we have speakeasy, which is a much, much better language than uh, english is barrento anyway something like that so i hope you're doing most fantastically and beautifully and uh, thank you everybody for your wonderfully kind support consideration interest criticisms corrections and all other sorts of beautiful things um upb2 i hope will be out uh, within six to eight months uh, i think uh, i may just start the book uh, scrap it and start it from scratch which uh, i think would be a uh uh, an improvement. I, I, I still like the structure. Uh, and of course, it's important not to get confused by the people who have problems, because you generally don't hear from the people who don't have problems. So, But but there's ways that I would like to reorganize it to overcome some of the most common problems with theory, and that will come out. Against the Gods is finished. Uh, I'll actually post a link to the audiobook in the chat room in case anybody wants to have a wee preview. It is a fine, fine book. I'm very pleased with it. And I think that the section on why we have gods is uh, some of the best thinking I think that I have ever done, and it could well be some of the best thinking I'm ever likely to do. Oh my God, I've peaked already. It's all all downhill from here. So uh, I hope that you do. <laughs> Well, I hope that you will enjoy it, and please let me know. If there's anything else that you think could be improved about the book, I would be very, very happy. All right, I believe we have some callers, and I am ready to hear and throw a few potential nuggets of hopefully not fool's gold into the uh, mix. So if you have a question, uh, you can uh, Skype, of course, just let James P. know. If you know have the Skype, which you're listening, if you're listening to this on computer, you should have. If you don't have the Skype, uh, you can call a number, and the number goes a little bit something like this. 315-876-9705 three one five eight seven six nine seven zero five. Just let James P know that you're calling because we now have auto answer in the server room. So let's go with the show. Hey
1: Steph. Oh. Oh, I believe
0: evening. that the uh, the lady with the cold got in first. Sorry, go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah I'm a bit sniffly this morning. Um hi I wanted to uh, actually just give a little update from a Sunday show conversation that I had with you almost two years ago. Oh, that one? Yeah, <laughs> it's no big deal. It's, uh, I don't know if you remember, but I called in and um, I mentioned, or I was asking if you had any uh, ideas about uh, phobias, and I mentioned that I had a phobia of um, like seeing people uh, throwing up.
0: Yeah, remember I remember that? that. Yeah, I remember that. That totally made me nauseous. Go on. Sorry. sorry. I'm but... kidding. I'm kidding. I don't have <laughs> that phobia.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, and I remember that when, when we were talking about it, it made, it made sense to me. Like the, the, you, you had mentioned a metaphor of, of um, like a lot of just like the digestive system and, and vomiting having to do with uh, like anger. And I, I definitely had experienced a lot of uh, rage from, from my parents when I was a kid. And that, it made sense to me intellectually, but um, just Friday night, it all kind of came, I mean, you know, paired with work that I did with a therapist and work that I've been doing on my own and stuff, it all kind of came together for me. And, um, yeah, I, I just kind of wanted to say that, that I think that you were exactly right on target um,
0: well, about- I must say that I, I do like to really linger over the calls wherein I'm right. <laughs> uh, so, so please take your time, and uh, I'm going to get quite comfortable here, uh, stretch out a little bit, rearrange the fig leaf, and uh, I'm, I'm all ears. Uh, tell me, tell me what, uh, what happened.
1: Yeah, so um, on Friday night I was watching uh, TV with Kyle, and there was a scene where um, one of the characters was gagging a lot. And I had been uh kind of trying to slowly work through the phobia um with like exposure therapy where I just kinda like especially on TV where I know that it's not like really happening and I can kinda just try to relax and and you know, kind of reinforce the, the idea that nothing actually bad is gonna happen to me when when I see people vomiting. And so i was I was trying to do that, and uh, I just had a really severe reaction and i I just like almost panic attack and so you know we paused it and uh I relaxed and and I was you know since it was so fresh, I was trying to really explore what was what what it was that I was so terrified of and uh as I was describing what it was, like everything that I was describing about it was it I wasn't describing uh somebody you know getting sick I was describing uh rage uh, and I think specifically my dad's rage because yeah I mean like it was just gagging I didn't even see anybody like actually getting sick on the TV show and I had just like this panic and I think it's because of that anticipation where um I I I know you have uh, some experience with rage so I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, the anticipation where you know that uh that there is gonna be an explosion. It's just kind of like you're waiting for it to happen, oh yeah, or yeah, and that's what that's what was really getting me 'cause and yeah, as I was working working it out and stuff, I just kind of realized like you know throwing up is not it's actually a really good thing, and it's just it's just the contents of your stomach, there's nothing like actually really bad or or anything happening when, when somebody gets sick is actually a lot of times a really good thing that's happening. So, yeah,
0: yeah no, I think, I think that's right. I mean, the, what, what sort of came, comes to my mind is not to sort of poke your phobia, but uh, I remember working – when I was working up north uh, as, as a prospector and gold panner, a friend of mine and I, we drove into town because every couple of weeks you just get sick and tired of <laughs> looking at the trees and, uh, in the tent. And we, we drove into town and we, we ate some – we went to a legion and we ate some pierogies. And I guess these pierogies had sort of been scraped off the back of the fridge that had been thrown out three years ago <laughs> and then boiled in, in fungus or something because I uh, got very, uh, very ill. Uh, and not not like sick, sick. I was just throwing up a lot. And, but my friend didn't. And he ended up having to go to the hospital. And he said uh, that um, I was lucky that I had a sensitive stomach because it meant that the moment my body detected uh, foreign, uh, foreign icky stuff that I would sort of throw up. So it's actually throwing up is a very good thing to do. Uh, because it's uh, it's something that keeps you healthy. It's something that is. It's the best way to to get rid of um, uh, uh, some some sort of bacteria or fungus or something which is bad for you that you've ingested. So uh, it is a it's a healthy thing. And so I sort of I sort of understand that. But but on the other side, when you look metaphorically, uh, if I remember what we talked about two years ago, if you look metaphorically at the act of uh, emotional vomiting, right, then it's uh, it's very different, right, because Uh, physical vomiting where it's healthy and it's your body protecting itself and it is not at the expense of somebody else whereas somebody who is uh, feeling humiliated uh, and then wants to level up by humiliating his children say uh, that is a kind of vomiting in other words he's trying to expel a negative substance called humiliation by putting it into somebody else Right, by so so I feel humiliated. I'm going to go and bully somebody weaker than I am, so that I can feel strong again. That is, in a sense, and not to use too gross a metaphor, that's different from throwing up. That's throwing up in somebody else's mouth. Right? That's a uh, you know, that, that that's a very different situation, and of course that's abusive. Whereas uh, simply getting sick from from exposure to some sort of <laughs> bio agent pierogi is not. So uh, if that makes any sense. So knowing that that imminent uh, transfer of leveling up of humiliation of of aggression is going to occur uh, is like that and i think that there is commonality in, meta- in in the unconscious where metaphors reign supreme there is commonality between vomiting and uh, leveling it up because it is an attempt for somebody to purge something unbearable within themselves but of course that the difference is that they have to put it in somebody else which is where the hideousness comes in
1: yeah Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's what I kind of realized that I was, I was describing when I was describing exact, like what I was afraid of happening. Like that. Yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing really bad happens when somebody gets, I mean, obviously it's uncomfortable for the person who's getting sick and it's, yeah, I mean, it's kind of uncomfortable for other people around too, but yeah, when it comes to, um, yeah, the emotional vomiting and, and, uh, you know, like rage, is uh, it definitely definitely hurts a lot. And and I I don't have uh, any uh, memories of you know like a specific traumatic event uh, where I I was exposed to vomiting. But I know that um, my parents were both heavily into drugs and alcohol when I was really really young, like pre-memory. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense to me that there would be a lot of rage and a lot of vomiting, or, you know, at least some kind of some vomiting. And so it kind of just made sense to me that that that's probably where that came from, just like a really early um, transferring of like, I I have to put this terror into something here where I feel like I can kind of control it where because it, you know, affects me all the time where I'm always kind of looking out for, for people throwing up and even, you know, in kind of irrational situations, but like if I hear somebody coughing, it'll automatically trigger this, uh, this fear. Right,
0: right, right. And there is, um, uh, you know, this is, let's make this the body fluids show, right? There is an involuntary aspect to to body fluids in certain ways, right? So, you know, I remember getting a fluoride treatment as a kid. So I vividly remember this. Uh, one thing my mom was pretty good at was was, uh, was uh, oral hygiene. And uh, so I got a fluoride treatment and, you know, they said, what flavor do you want? And I had this, you know, blueberry or candy or candy floss or something. And you have this theory, that you know, this idea that it's going to taste like these things. And they put this awful goop in your mouth that drips into your throat from these plat these sort of plastic casings for your teeth. And it just tastes like, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know, elf sweat and Satan's armpit. It's just horrible. And uh, whatever flavor they put on top of it seems to just make it worse. And after that, I couldn't get the taste out of my mouth. I remember walking along the street. I remember being shorter than garbage cans. So I was really young, maybe five or six. I was walking along the street and I was desperately trying to think of something like a big Mac because I didn't want to throw up. I didn't want to throw up. I didn't want to throw up up, because I felt really embarrassed about throwing up uh, anyway i didn't make it uh, i didn't make it. i also remember when i was much younger uh, i was i guess i was being toilet trained so i must have been 2 or 3 years old i remember having to basically take a crap and i was running from my room to the bathroom and i was thinking if i can make it i'm going to be a real giant you know i'm going to be a real human i'm going to be here <laughs> and i didn't make it and there's a kind of involuntary aspect to that as well i also remember in boarding school uh, having the nurse scrub my pants uh, after I'd crapped them by staying out uh, on the soccer field for too long. And, you know, the sort of disgust on her face. And there's also the, a phase uh, where farting uh, and, you know, poo poo and farting and all of that is very funny to children. Uh, and at the same time, very embarrassing because we have, you know, we have so much in our lives that is, is, is an out-of-body dream. You know, there's so much that we worship that is antibody, non-body. Uh, the body is truth. The body is is physical. The body is real. The body is us. There is no soul. There is nothing ethereal to our consciousness. Uh, we are not drifting in and out of uh, bodies uh, in a sort of slow motion, repetition, slow motion repetition of reincarnation. We are simply uh, electricity lodged deeply and dreamily in meat, but we are not any kind of uh, sky ghost dipping down into the physical, like a bird reaching in to grab a salmon from a river. And so because we're so fundamentally physical, but we are so infected with these dreams of otherworldly abstractions, and I don't just mean religion, though, of course, that is there too, that the perfection is gods and, and angels and the Virgin Mary and Jesus, all of whom are immaterial and anti-physical. So there's a huge amount of falseness that's built up in our dreams of the immaterial and our veneration and worship of imaginary and anti-physical, anti-material, anti-meat entities. So much of our false self is bound up in that, in in fact created by that. But it's not just religion. I mean, worshipping a country. A country is is exactly the same as a god. It's a completely immaterial entity. And because it has no existence, but we have to worship it. We only end up having to bow down to those who claim to represent it, whether it's politicians representing the country or priests representing God. It's like, I have this giant invisible friend that everybody must worship, but my giant invisible friend doesn't really talk except through me. So basically, you just have to worship me. If somebody says, you have to worship me, if a guy comes up to you and says, you have to worship me as an immortal, perfect, immaterial entity, be like, dude, (laughs) I can touch you. (laughs) So that doesn't work. So you have to invent this immaterial, giant infinite friend that you only claim to speak for. Uh, and uh, that, of course, is, is how hierarchies and, and power uh, work, whether it's class, which doesn't exist, or race, which doesn't really exist, or the nation, which doesn't exist, or culture, which doesn't exist, or gods, which don't exist. Uh, all of these immaterial, perfect entities are repudiated by one wet, involuntary fart, <laughs> because we all know that that is kind of a humiliating thing, which is a ridiculous thing to to think of, right? I mean, I think we've all been, you know, if you've been in a restaurant where you uh, suddenly swallow something the wrong way and you have a bit of a coughing fit or whatever, somehow people feel that this is embarrassing or wrong or whatever, but it's, this, it's your body saying, I really like to breathe because life is better than death, <laughs> so it's actually helping uh, helping out, in that way, it's really trying to to help you out. And so, I th- this is a, a sort of long way, but hopefully a useful way of saying that uh, there is all of this immateriality that infests and infects our minds. And the what what this exploitive, destructive, violent, and hierarchical immateriality, what it fears and hates, is mere biology, mere blood, flesh. Vomit, shit, uh, semen, like all of that sort of stuff. That's why God had to be created without ejaculation, right? Without uh, penis and vagina and sperm and egg and all that kind of good stuff. And so I think that there is something that, that is horrifying to really exploitive and, and destructive people about the mere flesh, about the mere thing itself called being a human being, as uh, as Lear put it. In uh, King Lear, this bare forked animal, right? Just a body and and two legs. And uh, I I know that temptation. I really do understand that temptation of the dream of immateriality as perfection. It is a desperate way to overcome not living in this life, right? So the more that you don't live uh, in a, a visceral, passionate, committed, emotional, connected, intimate, loving way, strong, courageous, virtuous, the degree to which you don't do that is the degree to which you are both infected by immateriality and the degree to which you must continue to worship immateriality, hoping that after death will be your reward for not living in this life. It becomes a real addiction. So I think there's a lot of complicated mythology that's built up in the unconscious about the mere flesh that we actually are. And part of it comes from, I think, a general incomprehension about how uh, as i 've sort of had this idea of writing a poem, basically it 's a one line poem sort of goes like this: um, A human being is a is a good machine for turning a pig into a poem because <laughs> you can eat some bacon and then go write a poem. Uh, but there is something that is very strange about living inside this helmet of meat and chemicals and electricity called the skull and yet having the ability to see to the edges of the universe and backwards in time to its beginnings and see the evolution of life through merely material means. and I mean, there is something astounding about a couple of pounds of wet meat matter being able to do mathematics and write symphonies. I mean, it is an astonishing thing. And we do sometimes almost feel catapulted out of our own brains by the capacities within our own minds. But it is something to be resisted. We must continue to root ourselves in the material. That includes the amazing ability of the mind to do all of its wonderful things. But it also includes and is founded upon shit and vomit and semen and (laughs) all of the other stuff that is material and which offends and is very offensive in a very fundamental way. It really offends people uh, who are addicted to immateriality and abstractions that this is… It it feels, I guess, undignified. You know, if you're a sort of glowing princess of God, it feels undignified that uh, you have menstruation every month. I don't know. I mean, that's why perhaps uh, it's considered in the Judaic religion unclean. You know, (laughs) why why are menstruating women not allowed into the temple? Because it is a reminder that all of this abstract, exploitive stuff is complete, total, ugly, vicious, and evil bullshit. And that God doesn't make human beings menstruating women... (laughs) make human beings and the menstruation is a a, a reminder that it is the physical that we come from and the abstract we may remain addicted to but it has no power other than to exploit us
1: yeah that that makes a lot of sense and and i was just thinking that it's it's kind of similar um or it's really similar the the kind of um almost like disdain that we have or not You and I, but, you know, in kind of in general society that we have uh, about, you know, like our physical bodies and also our emotions, like, um, you know, there's a lot of like humiliation around, you know, feeling sad or a lot of, um, you know, like anger. Like I'm sure if, if either of my parents had any kind of a healthy and realistic relationship to anger, it wouldn't have come out as this like horrible, you know, aggressive vomit.
0: Sorry, say that last part again, I just want to make sure I understood it
1: right I just mean uh that right like if 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 my if my dad or my mom had like a realistic and and healthy and like in you know in the moment relationship to their anger instead of like making it all about this uh you know the anger is is really bad and and violent and then they they might not have or they wouldn't have uh acted out the way that they did and probably yeah, had this effect where I distorted, distorted it.
0: Where you distorted it?
1: Sorry, yeah, into a phobia. Uh,
0: yeah, Does yeah, make- I, I wouldn't say you distorted it. I think it was a, a natural reaction to... Something that you could not experience or express in the moment, right? So if you have these sure. uh, aggressive and abusive parents, you can't say, you know, mom and dad, your, your anger and your drug use and your alcoholism or your, your drinking, as you mentioned, uh, is, is terrifying and alarming and horrible to me and I really want this family to get fixed and so on. Uh, this is not possible. Uh, it was not possible. And so it gets driven down into the metaphorical dungeon of the unconscious, right? That which we cannot express does not vanish. That which we cannot Say it does not vanish. It simply goes underground and mutates. The truth never dies. It just changes shape. This is why we have uh, so many creatures in mythology that change shape, right? Like werewolves and 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 vampires and other sorts of creatures that are all shape changers. Uh, This is simply saying that uh, you can uh, uh, you can repress something. You can put it in a coffin, but it's going to only change shape. It will not it will not die. And so I think it was a natural and inevitable reaction, not something that you did, but an, av- an inevitable reaction to something that was done unto you. And that you're right. I think that the, the baser emotions, and you can look at things like Buddhism and so on to find confirmation of this, the baser emotions are considered immature, lower level, and sort of selfish, right? And, and those emotions which are downgraded at all times, which are cast out, which are expelled, the emotions which are expelled and, and marked down in the hierarchy of values, usually to the negative, have always one thing in common. Always and forever, one thing in common. The emotions that are scorned are always the emotions that are inconvenient to the exploiters and the abusers. Always the emotion. So what emotion is revered? Forgiveness. <laughs> Right, forgiveness is revered because it is convenient for the abusers that we forgive them anger is downgraded because anger is inconvenient for the abusers who exploit us integrity to rational values is downgraded as ideological rigidity because it is inconvenient for people in power integrity to the whims of those in power, which is called obedience in the military or the police or or patriotism in the general citizenry. Respect for the law. Well, the law is just a bunch of opinions with guns. Right, so what other emotions are venerated? Well, a general calm, peace detachment from the things of this world. Well, why is that venerated? Because it reduces competition for the people who want to grab, hold, rip, tear, and consume the things of this world. So, and we can sort of go on and on, but there's there's a clear division. Those emotions which disrupt a violent hierarchy are scorned and rejected as immature, as short-sighted, as selfish, as primitive, as unworthy. Whereas those emotions, and it's really hard to call them emotions, it's more like, the empty, gassy vacuum that lies in the hole of a vacated soul. But those emotions which click you nice, easily, imperfectly, and gently into the hierarchy of power so that you're a good, obedient, and willing slave, well, those are very much approved of. We can imagine that a farmer, if his cows were intelligent, would send them to Buddhist schools of detachment and forgiveness. (laughs) That way, he could keep milking them and murdering them.
1: Right.
0: Right. Yeah. That's what, um, I, I mean, I, I do get, I'm sorry for raising my voice, but I do get, I do get angry when I hear uh, all of this praise of forgiveness. You have to forgive. You have to forget. You have to move on. I just think that is absolutely toxic. Absolutely toxic. Because it is always and forever only applied to the victims. Right. Not to the abusers. And any ethic which is applied only to the victims is scummy, parasitical verbal abuse. And is responsible for such a savage amount of violence in this world. That if you were to fill it with blood, it would eclipse the moon. Uh, I just, I absolutely loathe. Universal ethics that only ever apply to the victims. It is just such a net used to control and weigh us down that uh, I'm just, uh, yeah, anger is one of these things, right? Uh, see, if you if you get angry, then, um, I mean, p- part of the ho- horror of anger is invented by the masters, right? So that the slaves don't get angry and say, you know, fuck you to the masters. I'm out of here. I'm out of this hierarchy. This pyramid doesn't work for me. So part of it is invented by the masters. But a significant portion of it is invented by the slaves. Because anger gets slaves beaten. And slaves generally used to experience collective punishment, right? So if one slave ran away, they would all be beaten. And this is one of the reasons why there's such a horizontal clampdown on any move towards freedom and self-expression. Because historically slaves were punished collectively and therefore they had to police each other. That's why slaves were punished collectively. One, so that the person who ran away would then feel the guilt of the punishment raining down upon his friends and family. And the other is so because of the collective punishment, they would all enforce the edicts of the masters on each other. Collective punishment is uh, is just – it's evil genius. And so when a slave would get angry because of collective punishment, other slaves would face extreme danger. And therefore, they would all clamp down on each other. Don't get angry. You must forgive. You must forget. You must turn the other cheek. Eye for an eye is for the masters. You see, <laughs> turn the other cheek is uh, is for the slaves. And so there was a, a general horror in the slave class of any assertive emotions which threatened the hierarchy, because the moment you threaten the hierarchy, you rain down universal punishment on your fellow slaves. So they all clamp down on each other. Now it's really humiliating for people to say, "Well, we are slaves," and this is the bullshit we have to believe. This is the uh, you know, the crap sandwich we have to eat in order to survive. So they have to make a virtue out of it. And that's what, of course, Nietzsche talks about, that uh, the Christian slave population uh, made a virtue out of submission, made a virtue out of enslavement. And, I mean, they weren't the first and they weren't the last. We, of course, have it uh, now that uh, you can see this uh, uh, see this everywhere. I was just watching the... Um, Mm, trillion pound horror story of the british debt this sort of documentary Uh, i mean it's the same thing Uh, we should fix the government we should move more like to hong kong though hong kong of course has an enormous debt and it's going to go exactly the same way as every other government ah you hear the same story over and over oh there's a new tiger of economic freedom that's coming along it used it was ireland like a decade decade and a half ago now ireland is going hat in hand to the eu because they're out of money because it's all the same goddamn cycle so, yeah, I mean, it's very, very important to recognize that the value that is placed on emotions, certain emotions, you know, peace, obedience, <laughs> uh, turning the other cheek, uh, forgiveness, gentleness, meekness, uh, unless, unless you're ordered to go and kill some other slaves, in which case uh, heroism and patriotism and service to your country uh, and, and, you see, stabbing people. Uh, who are wounded, or as they call it, double-clicking in the military, right? Shooting somebody who's wounded. Uh, That is a virtue, because that's slave-on-slave violence, but uh, you can't ever be aggressive towards your masters. Towards your masters, you must have uh, forgiveness and loyalty. uh, and, And if you dislike any individual master, then you must have loyalty to the system as a whole. I don't like the war, but I support the troops. I don't like George Bush or Barack Obama, but I support democracy. Everything that we're taught about emotions, we are taught so that we will fit into the great chain of enslavement that runs from history and, unfortunately, into the future. But that's what we're taught about emotions. It has nothing to do with mental health.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that definitely resonates with my experience.
0: Yeah, do you remember? Do you ever remember, ever remember getting angry at a teacher when you were a kid?
1: Uh, yeah, I remember one time getting angry at a teacher, and then that teacher um, whispering in my ear that I'm not, like, she's not my mom or something like that. Like, really, she got really aggressive with me about that, or passive aggressive. Right. right. But yeah, it's It's absolutely not allowed.
0: Oh yeah, no, it was unthinkable, right? So I mean, teachers could could humiliate and scorn us. But if you drew one funny picture of a teacher, I mean, you were in detention for a week, right? It's it can't go both ways. Ethics are for suffocating the true selves of the slaves. They're only claimed to be universal, but the moment you act as if they are universal, well, you get royally fucked up, right
1: right right
0: i mean I, uh, it's it's it not so early this this <laughs> this universal rule, these universal rules. That always have exceptions, right? So uh, whenever you disobey the rule in, in in the wrong context, it's a universal rule that you have to obey, right? So so anger is bad unless we point you at some other innocent poor bastard across a trench, in which case blow the shit out of him and we'll give you a medal. Murder is bad. Murder is good. Theft is bad for you among slave on slaves. Theft is bad, but theft from masters to slave through taxation is virtuous. Right, but it's so funny. I mean, we we at um uh, we met up with with some listeners up here who have uh, two two absolutely charming and delightful girls, and they're a very nice couple themselves. And we've been socializing a bit, and we went to a farm yesterday. And uh, Christina and Izzy and I were walking through this um it's like a little maze, like a little path that was sort of enclosed, and there was an entrance and there was an exit. Now, Isabella went in through the entrance, and it was not too, too long, but she wasn't aware that there was an exit just around the corner, and she wanted to leave, so she didn't know to keep going on, She but she knew the way back. She knew how far it was to go back. She didn't know how much further it was to go on. So I sort of tried to tell her that it was just around the corner, but she wanted to go back, and so fine, we went back. And a little boy was running from the exit to the entrance, and he turned to us as he was running. He turned to us, and he said... You're only supposed to run the other way. You're only supposed to go the other way to us because we were going the wrong way. Now, remember, he was running past us in the wrong way. So he was <laughs> he was telling us we were going the wrong way and that was bad and wrong, while he himself was run, We were only walking. He was running the wrong way. So he was trying to inflict a, quote, punishing rule upon us that he himself was violating at the exact same moment that he was telling us it was wrong with no consciousness (laughs) of how insane that was that kid was like five or six years old it is such a fundamental thing that we live with I don't know if it's human nature or learned I assume it's learned because I don't really have much belief in human nature other than adaptation but we all get that if we can invent a rule that everyone has to follow except us we gain extraordinary power And so, of course, Christina set him straight about the UPB aspect of that, and, (laughs) you know, we sort of moved on. But uh, it was uh, – it's just astounding. You know, this is a five-year-old kid who's running saying, you can't run this way. It's wrong. Amazing. Just amazing.
1: Yeah. That's – I don't know what I was going to say after.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. I just it's it's sort of that. uh, I thought it was sort of relevant. So yeah. So listen, I completely understand that that you know we have a complex and ambivalent relationship with things like anger because uh, uh, it is something that is so propagandized in our lives.
1: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I I really appreciate the call.
0: You're welcome. And I I appreciate the follow up. I think that's one of the longer follow ups. But you know, if success only takes two years, uh, that is. (laughs) Fine progress, seriously. That is <laughs> damn fine progress, and congratulations.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: All right, thanks. I think we have another caller who may want to talk about what armpit sweat, uh, groin sweat, anal leakage, something like that, because uh, this <laughs> is the body fluids show. So, uh, everybody, get your jello shots, and let's get let's go to town.
2: Yeah, that was my second topic of choice, uh, but I think. <laughs> okay, was,
0: let's go with your first then. Let's break the uh, break the cycle.
2: Okay. Hey, Seth, how you doing? Good. How are you? Doing okay. Pretty nervous though. Um, So I was wondering if you could give me some insight on a personal problem I'm sort of involved with. All right. Um, As I put it to James before, I'm sort of in between a hard place and a bunch of crazy Christians. Um, I'm in – I sent you an email uh, maybe about a month ago. I'm 18. go to a uh, private Catholic school. And uh, we do these things at school called retreats, which basically means we all go away for a weekend. And it's actually pretty cultic we um, don't have contact with anyone else. I'm sorry, else.
0: did you say it was pretty culty?
2: Yeah, culty. Okay, sorry, I just, I uh, just missed the word. the word. Yeah, culty. Sure, go on. Yeah. Uh, um, we don't have contact with anyone else outside of uh, the retreat for three days. Um, we don't have watches, we don't have phones, we don't have TVs, any of that sort of stuff. And the idea is that we uh, are brought closer to God. And uh, this is something i would really enjoyed, you know, uh, for the past three years when I was a Christian. And um, about, I don't know, last spring... I was invited to become a retreat leader, which basically meant I got to organize all this sort of stuff with 12 other people. And, um, you know, the school takes these retreats pretty seriously. Now, I accepted at that point being a Christian at the time, and um, I now have an obligation to do that sort of stuff. And then over the summer, I really started studying a lot of the work that you put out on atheism and um, stuff that men like Dawkins and Hitchens put out, and I've really had a change of mind on the subject. Um, And now, I'm caught in this situation where I have an obligation to run this retreat, yet my ideas and my values are totally opposite to what these people are teaching. And I suppose my main question is how I can integrate my values that I now hold in my life and how to solve the sort of conflict between myself and the other people who I have to now deal with.
0: Right, right. Uh, help me understand how this obligation uh, has concretized if that makes sense so how how is it that so i guess you, you you volunteered or you were volunteered uh, uh, when you were uh, more uh deep in this delusion i suppose
2: yes sir um i was it, was it was technically an offer it was it's voluntary but it's one of those things where you really shouldn't um refuse doing it or else um sort of like social ostracism and you don't get a lot of respect from the administration. Um, there's another thing regarding, like, my theology class, where now that I'm doing this, it's um, part of my grade. So if I drop out of doing this retreat, then I fail theology,
0: which means I can't graduate. Right, right, right. So they've kind of got you by the short and curly, so to speak, right? Yeah, unfortunately, that seems to be the case. Well, I'm very sorry for that. Um, I'm very sorry for that that is a very tough situation to be in uh, I, I really do sympathize that is a very tough situation to be in um, now just uh, out of curiosity where are you in the sort of journey process arc of, um, of rethinking your, your religious uh, teachings teachings is the nicest word I can come up with so feel free to substitute yeah, something I, less I, kind I, if you like But
2: I, um, I think I'm at strong atheism I I, I I suppose maybe about a year ago that uh, Christian fundamentalism.
0: Wow. Okay. Uh, so I, I've come quite right a way a short amount of time. Holy whiplash, Batman! That's that's impressive. Good God! All right, go on.
2: Um. So. You want me to describe more about what my transition has been, or?
0: I, I, I'm, I, I'm certainly happy to hear how your transition has been. Uh, I'm, I'm more, more curious, though. I'm happy to hear whatever you've got to say. I'm more curious about where you are now, uh, but I'm, I'm really happy to hear about the transition because that always fascinates me as well.
2: Okay. Um, well, it, it was basically, a tra- to keep it brief, it's a transition from really Roman Catholicism that I found problems with that whole doctrine, tried to move to Christian fundamentalism, then moved to maybe a little bit of agnosticism through your work, and I didn't stick with that for a while because I think your agnosticism arguments, or at least arguments against it, made a lot of sense. So I had to accept strong atheism. Now where I am now is that I pretty well accept that God doesn't exist. I shouldn't say pretty well. I do accept that God doesn't exist. Um very much into um, learning about uh, this sort of stuff. And... Trying to understand the position even more so than I do now. If
0: that makes sense. Sure. Sure. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that's. I mean, that's really impressive. And uh, I mean, that's that's a lot to overturn. Uh, How's it been going in your uh, personal relationships?
2: Um. In a word, terribly.
0: I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But Um, uh, go on. I,
2: I, the the relationships that I have with people. Everyone that I know knew me as a Catholic or Christian fundamentalist. And, you know, going to a Catholic school, I was pretty well accepted, at least from the teachers in that regard. Um, You know, studied Aquinas, Augustus, all that sort of stuff. Um, Knew the theological um, arguments for the existence of God, all that sort of stuff. But now that I've tried to implement these new values into my relationships... If I want to be honest, I have to say, you know, I don't accept this stuff anymore. And that comes as a big shock to people, especially in the since they've known me in a certain context for three or three and a half years. And I, I guess it's confusing for people. And it's a huge shock. And it, it just seems to throw a lot of my relationships out of whack.
0: Uh, out of whack. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about that?
2: Sure. Like, um, my mom. Um, she's a Roman Catholic. Um, she was the one that raised me Roman Catholic in the first place, and I recently had a conversation with her um, in like the, the most generalized way possible about some of the flaws within the Bible. Where I so, somehow it got, we um, brought up a lecture that was given at mass about uh, from the bishop about some sort of early Christian uh, people, and I brought and the guy had mentioned that you know. They were one unified people, and I just done some reading, and I and I knew that that's not true. There were two divisions within Christianity, I think the Aryans and the Catholics. And I started talking to her about this sort of stuff, and she sort of, I don't want to say started to reject the information, but she was very much taken back by it. Um, I suppose maybe a stronger example would have this, it, like this type of thing, is like with uh, politics, whereas none of it's very... Big neoconservative, but now that right. I'm an anarchist, I have the same type of parallel going on, where I bring up anarchism with people, in my relationships, that I'm throwing out as crazy or delusional or you know idealistic. Right. I don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question or if I'm going off.
0: Do you know? Listen, I mean, this is this is I mean, this is very important stuff for me. And and again, I mean, congratulations on this this sunburst of rationality. But I know that it comes, you know, it's like if you don't brighten up, if you don't become light yourself, you don't see the shadows in the people around you. You know, like you, you light a fire and you can see all the shadows behind the trees. Uh, if, if you illuminate your mind, it, sh- it throws a lot of shadows in the people around you. And that is an uncomfortable experience. So I, if you had to guess, if you had to guess, do you think people would choose you over their illusions?
2: I don't know if I could generalize it like that. If I did have to generalize it, I would say no. I think there are maybe a few people that I know who would choose me over the illusions, but I would say the majority would just choose the illusions.
0: Right, and so choosing you, I guess, is a misnomer because it's not a personal thing. But but, but choose reason over illusion, right? Which which in a sense is is choosing you. So, yeah, and that look that that's a chilling thing to see, and I just sort of wanted to pause and and really acknowledge that. Before we go on to any thoughts I might have about uh, this um, this obligation you have, it is, a, it is a really chilling thing to see in people's faces as they struggle with the choice whether they're going to continue in a delusory ideology, or religiosity is the same thing, whether they're going to continue in the matrix or they're going to step out of it. Uh, that is a, a chilling thing. It is... Uh, my experience was that it was kind of a humiliating thing, you know, when I would go to friends and family and say, look, this is, this is the truth as I've recognized it. Here are my arguments and here's the evidence. And I was always told, you know, arguments and evidence, right? I mean, we were always told that that was important. And uh, I would bring this to people and I could see the struggle. I could see this struggle where they would recognize that there was great value and validity in what I was saying. I didn't have to accept it all right away. It takes time and so on. But they got that I wasn't saying I'm being told what to do by a giant invisible spider sitting in the base of my spine, right? They, they're not, they, they knew it wasn't crazy. They knew that there was reason. They knew that there was evidence. And so they would try all of these ridiculous tricks because they wanted to find some way to throw me off the horse that I was riding, right? As I sort of reached down to, to hold them up and so people would – like if I was into Ayn Rand, people would say – and I, I just had somebody email me about this. So they'd say, oh, wow. Well, so there's nothing you don't agree – you don't disagree with anything about Ayn Rand? You just follow everything she says? Like, that's important. Like, what, what does that have to do with anything? I don't follow Ayn Rand at all. I follow reason and evidence. If she has better reason and evidence, I follow her. If Nietzsche has it, if, if Aristotle has it, if maybe I have my scraps here and there, then that's all that matters. It's not following a person. I mean, <laughs> nobody says – uh, I just believe everything that Darwin says. Now, people say, well, Darwinian evolution is uh, pretty incontrovertible as far as scientific theory goes. Nobody says, I'm a slave to Einstein. Like I'm a slave to reason and evidence, so to speak. So when you are putting reason and evidence in front of people, it is, uh, it is deeply threatening. Uh, it, they don't see their own shadows if there's no light around them. This is why human beings sort of love to grope around in the darkness and hug their collective delusions, because without light... There are no choices without light. There are no shadows, and there is no sense of where you are. So uh, I just wanted to just sort of pause and say that is a is a very tough situation to be in, where people are choosing between illusion and a real person. I mean that that's a choice that makes no sense to me. You know, my friends and family, and it's a choice that made no sense to me. And I, I had I did not have enough respect for the power of propaganda when I was younger. And when I say younger, I mean. A few years ago, I did not have enough respect for the power of propaganda because I never really imagined that people would choose ideology over a brother or a son or a lover or a friend of 20 years. I just could not imagine when I started using the against me argument and say, well, do you support the use of violence against me? I thought for sure that it was in a sense the crowbar of my relatedness and my history with people that would dislodge this boil of statism or lance this boil of statism, so to speak. I thought that once they got that they were advocating the use of violence against me, they would drop statism like they thought they were picking up a stick and it turned out to be a rattlesnake. Wah! Away with it, right? But that's not what happened. That's right, what, I mean, yeah. The, I mean, the it, bonds were so fragile, right?
2: It, that's, that's not oh. Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, exactly. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. Taking these types of ideas to people who I'm close with is a humiliating thing. And at least when you, when you talk about the choice between illusion and a real person, as someone who once you know believed in this delusion, I, I don't think that the people see it that way. I think that they see it as a choice between two actual people or, you know, in their mind, a God and an actual person. And you, you can't reject God in favor of some person.
0: Um, well, um, I, I understand what you're saying, but there still is a perception in religious people that God is out there, that God does exist. And it's not just an internally generated fantasy. And, of course, reason and evidence, you know, chip away at that all fairly quickly. I mean, they chip away at it like oh, yeah. a, an asteroid lands on a sandcastle, right? And that, Total, I think, yeah. is, uh, is a great threat. I just I, I you know I the, my whole life I was told for instance I was told a family is everything family is everything friends are everything it only matters your relationships are what matters not uh, money uh, not career not ideology not uh, you know your particular cultural biases that you have to put your relationships above everything uh, you've heard that same thing too right i mean it's not just me who heard all this nonsense right oh yeah i definitely heard it yeah, and I, you know, like uh, I, I complain about other people believing stuff that they've been told, and I actually I do believe that that's true. I think that relationships uh, are are essential, and and it's, you can't be a happy person without uh, loving, intimate, and and uh, virtuous relationships. You just you can't. And so, I believed all of that stuff like it was just true now of course the things that are really true don't need to be repeated right i don't need to be i don't need to write on my hand every day uh, shit falls down right because <laughs> i kind of remember that because it's true that stuff falls down so i don't try and put my ipod you know i don't try and leave it hanging in midair like i'm on the space station so stuff that is true like i need to take my key i don't have to write down that i have to write on my car dashboard that i need keys to start my car I just, I mean, I may forget them, but I don't forget that I need keys, right? So uh, things that are true don't need to be repeated. I don't, I don't need to write, I don't, I don't need to wear a T-shirt with the reverse letters called, I love my daughter, or I love my wife, so that I remind myself when I'm brushing my teeth, because those things are all true, so I don't need them repeated. But everything that, I'm, I'm inc- incredibly suspicious of anything that is repeated all the time. Uh, to my mind, ev- anything that's repeated all the time is just false by definition, Because if it were true, it wouldn't need to be repeated. And so everybody said to me, oh, family is everything. Relationships are everything. So like a a grinning, happy village idiot, I wandered into this arena saying, no, no, no. I have my relationships to lean on. I have my family and my friends of 20 years to lean on. And when I bring the reality of their beliefs to them, they will choose me. Their brother, their friend, their son, their uncle. They will choose me over these ideologies because everybody has always told me that relationships are everything. And it's just not true. It's just not true. Just about everyone I've heard from, not everyone, but just about everyone I've heard from, ideology, fantasy, delusion wins out over human flesh and blood people almost every time. It's chilling how spider web thin our relationships are, that disagreements about the use of violence disagreements about the indoctrination of children about gods and ghosts and, and afterlives and people walking on water and water turning into wine turning into blood and bread into flesh i mean that these these delusions which would be psychotic if held by an individual become normal when held, when held by a collective these delusions seem to win out every single time and that's a that's a chilling thing to experience
2: Yeah, it really is. It's
0: terrifying. It is. It is. It is terrifying how powerful this stuff is. So I just, I really wanted to just sort of pause and and just acknowledge and, and mention that you're not alone in this. This is something that all people who find reason and evidence have to face, which is that in the choice between imaginary friends and real flesh and blood people seem almost invariably to choose imaginary friends whether that's the state or or the god or whatever they, 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 they choose to live in fantasy rather than be with real people that's, that's a chilling thing and this is one of the reasons why people stay in fantasy because they, everybody knows that deep down everybody knows that deep down and that's why they stay so, uh, enough of that, if that's all right with you. I really wanted to acknowledge that. Happy to talk about it more if it would be of use to you, but the more immediate concern that you had about this imminent experience of um, uh, of uh, youth leadership, right?
2: Yes. I think that's the more pressing thing at the moment. But thank right. you for uh, that. Uh,
0: I'll give you my brief thoughts on this. Um There's two ways to approach it, uh, and there's no—I mean, please understand. I'm in no way telling you what to do. I mean, I'm some guy (laughs) on the internet, right? I'm just telling you this is the way that I would divide the choice up for myself. Um, If I were going just as a a a victim, you know, if I was just going as a uh, a, a tenant of this place, uh, or I don't know what you'd call them, a a, retreatant. Yeah, but what what do the people go? Who, what do they call like when they're there, right? The attendees were, or what's that? Attendees or what? What oh, do you
2: retreatants. call
0: retreatants? Like the people that go on the retreat or retreat. Yeah, what well, what do you call them? So we do call them the oh retreatees. Retreatants. Retreatants. Yes. Okay, retreatants. Good. It's my word of the day. So if I was just a retreatant, then I would say, okay, well, I'm just going to go and I'm going to emotionally experience what it's like with my new awareness. Right, because you can you can you can get a lot of closure in a situation simply by opening yourself up to it completely and saying, "I know I don't believe this stuff, but I'm going to go and absorb what it's like to be in this environment." Right. So uh, an example of that would be, uh, and you can do this as a leader to some degree as well. So uh, we took Izzy to a uh, my we took my daughter to a. Uh, a uh, little fair that was going on and uh, there were the, the mayor of Mississauga, this wizened old crone of 900 years old who I think would be Methuselah's grandmother, uh, was giving a speech about, you know, it's the best place in the world to live and we have the best health care and we have the best resources and we have the best workforce and we have the best government and everybody was cheering. And, and, of course, it's all mad, right? But I can just be there and experience what it's like to be in an empty crowd. And it's a chilling thing, right? It's like in the movies, you know, where you've got a guy dressed up as a zombie who's moving among the zombies, you know, and he's like, you know, I hope, my makeup, I hope I don't sweat my makeup off and I hope people don't notice. Or like in Invasion of the Body Snatchers when you're trying to move among the alien replicants and you just kind of have to pretend you're one of them and, and you know you're not but you hope that nobody notices and so on. You can just have that experience and sort of remind yourself of what it's like to dissolve into the empty-headed collective Borg. It's, it's a good reminder. Of uh, of uh, of what we're all about, so you can sort of go and experience it, you know, in a sense without judging it, uh, but just go and experience it for what it is. I think that will give you a lot of closure to see it with uh, the new eyes, so to speak. I think is a uh, uh, is a good idea. Now, that would be my first approach. The second approach, which I think is, uh, uh, if you know your theology, and it sounds like you do, there is a time-honored tradition in most theologies, but particularly in Christianity, of bringing atheist questions to the table and then appealing to faith. Right. So there's lots and lots of writers uh, who there's still debate in the academic community about whether they were atheists or not. And these writers would say, okay, so here's ten arguments against the existence of God. Boom, 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 boom. And then they wouldn't answer those arguments. But what they do is they would say, and thus is the glory of God that it requires so much faith to continue to believe in him. And thus is our additional faith even more rewarded when we overcome these objections without having an answer for them, even within our own hearts and follow Jesus anyway. Does that sort of make any sense?
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually.
0: Um, right. So you can, bring, you can bring the arguments that convince you. You can completely bring them to Christians. And say so. Here's an argument that you may come across from an atheist. Boom, 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 right? And just have that. You know, I'm playing devil's advocate. Blah, you know, horns and a, a tail of it, right? So play devil's advocate, and then say, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess, I guess most people would say that it's a matter of faith to continue to believing. But there is no way to answer these objections rationally. That's uh, planting a kind of seed in a way, while still remaining entirely within the confines of theological discourse. And again, with a long and noble history of uh, free thinking emerging. Uh, in the Christian fog that way.
2: Yeah, I know what you mean. i had done something similar when we have these retreat meetings. The leaders will all get together with some of the adults and we have to plan stuff out. And they ask us some personal questions. And one of the questions was, you know, what's your relationship like with God? And I tried to be as honest as I could be without saying, hey, I'm an atheist, uh, you know. Um, and I basically said that, you know, over the summer my relationship with God had been degraded because I have questions and all that sort of stuff. And uh, the adults seemed pretty curious about what those questions were and my experience of them. So, you know, in the most honest way, I could, in the situation, explain, well, you know, I have this question A, B, and C, and, you know, I can't seem to have any answers to them. And, you know, they didn't really have any answers either, but their whole idea was, you know, God will give you the answers. And it was like a big question. How do we know that God exists? Well, God will give
0: you the answer to that. Right. Right, you can use those three magic words in, in Christianity. What's your relationship with God like? I'm being tested. <laughs> and here's the testing that I'm undergoing, blah, 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 right? And, and so on, right? So, yeah, I'm still committed. Hey, look, I'm still committed to Jesus. I, I, I've been an atheist for 35 years. But I swear if, if Jesus comes down tomorrow, I'm back. <laughs> you know, I'm back. You know, if if he passes double-blind scientific testing and uh, he can levitate pigs and walk on water and, and perform miracles and bring people back from the dead, uh, so on, right? Uh, I'm down. I'm there, right? So if God has a good answer for me, uh, then, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I'm there because uh, reason and evidence uh, is uh, is my religion, so to speak. So, um, so in, in, it's not really a false thing to say. Uh, I mean, I'm still being tested as an ex-Christian. Uh, I'm just, you know, the test is is very good, <laughs> right? It's a very good test, and actually a very enjoyable one. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, if if God comes down tomorrow, I'm, you know, I'm all over him like a cheap soup, like a fat kid on a smarty. I'm there. But um, so, in a sense, when you say, "Well, look, I'm being tested," and, and here's the thoughts that are going on through my head, it is a way of getting the um, the word out without uh, directly pushing people's um, uh, defenses.
2: Wow, that's really smart, yeah. I like that idea. Because I have to give a talk um, to a lot of these, actually all of the retreatants, um, about my relationship with God and on a specific topic. My topic is uh, what is love and how has love affected me, and where is the love of God in my life? And um, that's something I was struggling with, how, because it helps to be honest, to be perfectly honest with what we say. And my whole struggle has been how do I write something like this, and how do I give that sort of speech while still being honest and while living my values. And I think that phrase, I'm being tested, is going to let me sort of, not, not, not weasel out of it, but to find a little bit of a loophole.
0: Right. And another approach that you can take, uh, if, you, if you have a question about, uh, I would assume, your relationship with God and, and uh, what it's done in your life. and some, Was there something about virtue in there? Is that right?
2: Yeah. How do, how do, I, give a, how do I give a speech, which I know is going to contain lies, if I'm trying to give them what they want, but still re- live with integrity is that makes right
0: sense. right well look um, the the reality is that Christians do not worship God because God is powerful, because the worship of power is not moral right right so so you could say something like this, <laughs> you could say something like. Uh, I am trying to differentiate my worship of God from my worship of virtue, of virtuous living, because I don't want to worship God just because God is a word, just because God is all-powerful, or even just because God is all-good, if I don't know God, eh? Is angry. God is vengeful. God tells uh, the guy to kill his son. God blows up the world except for Noah uh, and then says, oops, sorry, here's a rainbow because Lord knows a rainbow makes up for a genocide. So, I mean, you don't have to go quite, quite that harsh. But we, we understand that the example of how God lives in the Bible is not something that I can directly emulate because I'm not God. I, I, even the example of Jesus, who was uh, a God in human form, is not an example that I can directly emulate because I'm not Jesus. I can't perform miracles. I don't have that direct relationship. God doesn't speak like a voice in my head. So the challenge that I am trying to work out is to understand what virtue means outside of just saying, I love Jesus. I believe in God. I am a Christian. I need to figure out what virtue means without just the template of a God that I can't follow, without just the template of Jesus who I can't follow directly because I'm not either of those beings. So I've really been trying to say my relationship at the moment is with virtue. My relationship is exploring what it means to be a good man, not just exploring my relationship with God, which is obviously an important part of my life. And obviously it still is right and, and, and will be for some time because it's what you grew up with. But you could focus on your pursuit of virtue rather than your pursuit of uh, worship because worship doesn't inform you necessarily how to make difficult moral choices in your life. Uh, Simply saying, uh, I worship God, I have a strong relationship with God, I pray to God, doesn't give you a very strong understanding. In fact, I would think it gives you a very bad understanding of how to make difficult moral choices in your own life. So you can focus on your pursuit of virtue rather than just your uh, veneration of God as something that you're pursuing. I think that has a lot of truth in it, and I think that's a valuable conversation. And it does differentiate obedience to incomprehensibility from The pursuit of uh, rational ethics if that makes sense that makes a
2: lot of sense yeah and you know the pursuit of virtue is interesting because i remember your rtr book um believe it's you know love is an involuntary response to virtue and since my talk is all about love and my relationship to it virtue fits in very well with that
0: yeah and look nobody no christian alive who's sane would say we just have to do exactly what jesus did because that's so much open to interpretation Right. Are you like the dewy eyed hippie Jesus or are you the Jesus with a whip who's driving out the money lenders from the temple? I mean, it's not a very consistent character to follow if you just want to sort of say, I'll do what Jesus did, because Jesus, of course, did a lot of things, uh, at least in the myth. Right. So yeah. uh, trying to find something more consistent. And Of course, the angry people follow the angry Jesus and the vengeful Jesus and the vengeful God, like the Old Testament people, are, are the angry people and the New Testament people are the more pacifist people and so on. And so, uh, you know, to avoid cherry picking is very important to try and find some consistency because cherry picking is really the <laughs> – I mean, there's nothing to religion but cherry picking what appeals to you most personally. So saying that you're trying to focus on sort of, you know, a, a consistent and rational organization of your values um, uh, is, is I think something that could be a very good conversation uh, for people to have. And it does plant the seed that obedience to fictional characters which you don't – which you can't possibly emulate – you know, I might I might as well say, you know, I'm going to live my life like Superman. You know, <laughs> well, I can't fly. I'm not fast in the speeding train. I'm not invulnerable to bullets. So uh, I'm not going to uh, uh, I'm not going to do that. That's like saying I'm going to have a, a financial plan called live like Bill Gates. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't really make any sense. So uh, that could be an approach that you take that I think has a lot of honesty and resonance, will spread, uh, I think, some interesting concepts and hopefully open up some curiosity, but isn't exactly, you know, waving a... Um, a, a, a torch in Frankenstein's face, so to speak.
2: Right. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense.
0: Is that, uh, is that enough to work with? Uh, have I been sort of, uh, of uh, some remote kind of use?
2: I think you have been. Uh, you thank think?
0: You. No, no, it's yeah. something that I, <laughs> if there's something that I haven't, I'm, uh, I'm happy to, to pursue it further.
2: It's just a lot of, it's just a lot of, to take in and process.
0: Right. Yeah. You um, might want to listen to it again. But, no, listen, you,
2: but- about.
0: And look, oh, if, if if before you look like, if you listen to this again, if before you go, if you want to practice, if you want to role play, if you do any kind of that stuff, just give me a shout. I'd be happy to to listen and maybe give some more tips because it's a very important thing that you're doing, uh, in my opinion. Uh, bringing a little bit of reason to uh, a lot of young people is a very important thing to do. If there's anything else that I can do to help, please uh, let me know. I'd be more than happy to. Maybe oh, would
2: it. Maybe would it be possible for us to um, talk about the uh, talk after I write it before I have to give it to people?
0: Yeah. When are you giving it? About five weeks, maybe six. Yes, absolutely. Just remember, if, if you can write it over the next week, uh, I'm going to be uh, in um – uh, in arizona uh, for a conference i'm speaking at a conference uh, so for uh, i think from like the the second of december through for a week so uh that'll be much less available then so if you could, but that's in two weeks right so if you could sort of give me a a shout in a couple of days or a week then we can do it then
2: i plan on writing the talk today
0: so that would be great oh beautiful okay fantastic all right that would be great okay thank you very much steph you're very welcome man best of luck and and congratulations again
3: uh, yes, my, my wife and I have been uh, considering uh, being foster parents, and um, uh, ethically I, I have a bit of a problem with it because in most cases the children are forcefully removed from their homes. Um, however, I, I, I do like the um, aspect of, uh, of trying to help children, and um, the agencies uh, <laughs> claimed a mission of reuniting the children with their families once that becomes possible. So I, I, I'm a bit split on um, on whether or not I want to participate in that system, and I just was hoping to get your thoughts on that.
0: Can you just give me a little bit more background about the uh, the decision and what's uh, what's going on for you guys?
3: Uh, sure. Well, we have uh, three children of our own, and um, you know, for for a while we we've just been considering uh, you know to to foster other children. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the system in the U.S., um, but the uh, Essentially, what happens is if if the state deems that a child's uh, welfare is at risk, um, there are a number of intervent- interventions that take place, um, ultimately leading to the removal of the child from the home. The child is temporarily placed in um, a foster care situation, um, while the parent, you know, perhaps goes through parenting classes or drug treatment, and um, you know, with with the hope being that eventually the child is placed back uh, in the home with the parents and um you know we we just we like the idea of being able to help to provide a um you know a safe place for for a child in a difficult situation like that and also um you know perhaps to to work with the parents and try try to help them um you know on their journey back to becoming uh, responsible parents if that's even possible um but the the, the part about it that I, that bothers me is that it you know it is the state coming in and you know making the decision You know, one judge makes a decision. Okay, this child needs to be removed um, from from their parents and placed into a foster home. And uh, but at the same time, if the child is really in danger, I I can understand the need for that. Right. But um, uh, yeah. So so ethically, I'm not sure that I'm okay participating in a system like that. But at the same time, um, you know, it sort of goes along with what you said. Um, when when people. When they say, "Well, you know, if, if you have a free society, how how would how would people be helped? Um, you know, w- without this, uh, without forcing people to help uh, with wel- welfare and other systems, um, you know, nobody nobody would help anybody who who, who is in need." And right. you know, what I'd sort of be saying is, "Well, I you know I am an anarchist. I I do want a free society. You know, I am an atheist. I'm not doing this to convert somebody you know who who hasn't been raised as a Christian and into a Christian or anything like that. I just you know, I just want to be an example of of somebody who can help, and truly for you know for the desire uh, to help a, a less fortunate child. Right, right. But, but that aspect of of the you know the harsh intervention of the state really uh, really bothers me. So I'm I'm kind of torn on it.
0: Right, right. No, it's a, it's a challenging question. What pops into my mind is that if you know if if you and I saw someone getting mugged and we had, I don't know, some ninja martial skills that allowed us to intervene. In a state of society, uh, I feel that I would intervene in that situation, regardless of the fact that it would probably be reported to the police and I would have to maybe go and testify in court uh, and all of that kind of stuff. In other words, there is the moral action itself and then there's all of the crap that the state wraps around it, so to speak. And I don't, sure. think we want, I don't think we want the state to eclipse the moral action itself, if that makes any sense, and say, well, I can't do this thing, which is a good thing to do, because there's a state apparatus around it, because then that's, in a sense, allowing the state to prevent you from doing something that's good. Hmm. Which is not really being free of the state, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, uh, what I would suggest... Is talk to the uh, the, uh, the foster home area uh, and uh, or the foster group and say, look, uh, the, these are my concerns. You know, I have some reservations about the the system as a whole, but I do want to help the kids. Uh, you know, what can we do? So they may say something like, look, we will uh, sit down with you or we'll talk to you on the phone and we will go over the case details. You know, there's 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 some woman who's strung out on drugs and she's been unable to care for her children or whatever. I think that we all would want to do something to help someone like that out. uh, And I think it's a very good thing to do. But, um, uh, and so you wouldn't not want to do it just because there's a a government agency involved, because I think it would be a good thing to do in a free society, in a government society, in a slave society, whatever. Sure. But you also may have, you know, when you hear some other case, you may have suspicions or reservations about it. And so you may just want to apply your own, you know rational standards for uh, intervention uh, and just look at the details of each particular case and not worry so much and i look, I appreciate that you're bringing it up, and I'm completely sensitive to to your concerns, but not worry so much about the fact that the state is around, but rather uh, think more about what's happened to the child and what you you can do to help as an individual uh the fact that the state is there is is a hassle, but you know, we still drive on public roads, despite the fact that they're run by the government, because we have to get places. And if the place that you want to get is to helping children, which I can't tell you how much I admire, then I would judge that on a case by case basis and try and forget as much as possible about the statism that's wrapped around it.
3: Excellent. Uh, thank you very much, Steph.
0: You're welcome, and, and please keep me posted. I would be fascinated to hear how it goes. Uh, I mean, I think that, that what you may need to prepare yourself for is that the government may return the child to a um, an environment that uh, that that you do not think is is good. Uh, that's that's going to happen. I, I have no doubt of that. But at least the child, you know, just because the child is going to be hungry in the future doesn't mean that we shouldn't give him a meal now, so to speak.
3: Indeed, and, and we we have been taking the classes. Um, there there there's a a program I, you have to take about I uh, maybe 18 hours of courses and um you know we we definitely understand that uh typically what happens is the child goes in and out of foster care you know 3 to 4 times over a period of about 2 years um right. you know and either it works out after that point or or the, parent, the parents rights are terminated which is um i just hate the thought of it but i also hate the thought of of uh, you know some poor child uh, suffering through that but anyway if we can do our our small part
0: oh listen that that is not a small part that is not a small part at all i think that what you're contemplating takes a huge it it takes a huge heart it takes a huge spirit it takes a generous mind uh, and a generous wallet because this is not cheap to do and i just wanted to express huge admiration uh, for for what you're contemplating i hope that you find a way to follow through in it because all children should be exposed to a household that is peaceful and reasonable and affectionate and all of those kinds of good things. Uh, even if all you do is plant a seed, then it can have a huge effect. I mean, I had a friend when I was a kid. Uh, his household was uh, ordered and fun and the parents uh, were involved. And uh, that had a huge effect on me. Just Just to see something that is different, to see something that is potentially different or in actuality is different from what you've experienced. You know, the the one problem with these underworld families have abused uh, children is that they tend to live on a completely different planet from everybody else. Uh, Certainly when I was a kid, uh, all the function, all the families around were dysfunctional because we lived in a a subsidized uh, public housing in a pretty rough part of town and, and all the families, were dysfunctional and yeah you'd go to school and you'd maybe see other people come and and pick up their kids and look relatively happy and all that but that wasn't something that you that i lived much certainly when i was younger i just didn't live that i didn't really see that uh, as something other than you know like a foreign film with no subtitles it's like i see but it doesn't really connect with me i see it but it doesn't have any resonance for me Mm. whereas being in a household of some greater order and some greater stability and some greater affection well, I shouldn't say. With some order of stability, it wasn't great. It was there at all. Uh, I, I kept that. I held that close to me. You know, like uh, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, the the, the elf queen gives uh, Frodo that little light uh, that in the time of darkness is going to burn. And when he's in Vashilab, it burns. And, and that's kind of it lights up and saves him. that's the kind of light that you can hold on to when you just step for a time into a peaceful and reasonable household. You can really hold on to that. And that can give you a possibility to move towards. that otherwise, you just may never experience it's a foreign film, but exposure to it turns on the subtitles. you can read it, it has resonance for you, and you can begin even in a small way to move towards it as an adult. so I think that what you're doing is uh, is is just fantastic.
1: Oh
3: thank you That, that, that was a wonderful analogy too i uh, I look forward to sharing this with my wife
0: Shit, oh, I whole- hope so, and, and uh, yeah, if you get a chance, let me know how it goes. I certainly would be, um, uh, would be happy to hear and, and again, congratulations on on thinking about this stuff.
3: Oh, thanks. I, I will. I will keep you updated. Thanks, Steph.
0: All right. You're very welcome. All right. Friends, Romans countrymen, lend me your words. Yeah, lend me your hair. Oh, my God. If any parents have any tips about how to get toddlers to have haircuts without screaming, that would be Good. We had to take Izzy to. Well, we didn't have to, but uh, it took Izzy to uh, to get her haircut. We tried a couple of times, uh, and uh, she didn't work. We eventually, just had, I mean, her hair was like hanging in her eyes. I mean, it was not good, and uh, so she did eventually get a haircut. But uh, it was not a pretty scene. So, anybody has any tips or tricks? Um, we were able to do the toothbrushing. The toothbrushing has continued now for months after one intervention. um the, the toothbrushing has continued. She's great with it. Uh, she has no problems with it. We've turned it into a fun game. We've never uh, had any particular issues with it again. But, yeah, the haircut thing is, uh, is pretty rough. And I remember crying when I got uh, my haircut as a kid. I guess you just think it's going to hurt or something like that. But.
3: Well, we, we, we actually had a, a lot of luck with that initially. As long as you, as long as you don't mind um, a less than a perfect result. Uh, my, my
0: wife. Oh yeah, no. We we I actually thought of just cutting off her bangs while she was sleeping. <laughs> because that was the only thing. I don't. I mean, I didn't like the hair. It looked looked pretty ratty, but uh, it was uh, it was just hanging in her eyes all the time, and she wouldn't wear a hair clip, so she was just constantly bothered by it. So we kind of had to do something. But yeah, I guess we could just go with a sort of monk look and <laughs> not worry so much about.
3: It. Well, well, what it meant was that you know perhaps if you and or your wife would take a, a shot at it. I mean we we found that part of the. Uh, the scare for our children was that it was a stranger holding the scissors and that when, you know, the when their mother held the scissors, it wasn't quite, a, quite as uh, scary. And um, over time, they, they began to trust the haircutting process and we were able to take them uh, to a professional. So,
0: Right. Okay. I appreciate that. We will definitely try that. I mean, it's been more than six months since the last haircut, so uh, we will definitely try that next time. Thank you. That's a good idea. I completely hadn't thought about that, which is sort of retarded, but. For me not to think about that, but yeah, you're quite right. That's a good idea. Oh yeah, no, I did watch someone else getting her, their hair cut. Absolutely, um, I took her once or twice uh, before we took her to the like I took her to the hairdressers and, and showed, look, this kid's having. We tried to engage the hairdresser, tried to give her toys, uh, tried to offer her ice cream. I mean, it was, uh, but yeah, she really, really didn't want to get her hair cut. So we'll, we'll try. We'll try it at home. I tell you, she just looks a million times better and she's much less bothered by her hair now. So I'm glad we did it. But yeah, this, I, I would definitely try that. We'll, we'll do it uh, instead because just doesn't matter how it's styled. It only matters that it's shorter. Wash your head with Nair instead of shampoo. <laughs> yeah, no, I tried that with myself. It didn't work so well. Uh, somebody's asked um Galambos. Uh, who is, I believe, a pretty radical IP guy in the um, libertarian movement. I know very little about him other than probably pretty biased misinterpret, and I assume fairly hysterical misinterpretations of his ideas, like you had to pay somebody a dime for using his name or whatever. Uh, So I have not uh, had a chance to review him. It's not high on my list. Um, So uh, we'll uh, uh, we'll see. If I'm ever really short on topics, which I certainly haven't been as yet, then uh, I will... um, uh, I will look it up, but it's not uh, not on my list as yet. I do believe we have time for one more caller. Hello, Steph, can you hear me? I sure can. Oh, hey, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? Sorry, I had to cut this listener off. His audio was very bad. He was complaining about being heavily criticized at work for a genuine fault that he had made. So I'm responding to that, and I'm sorry for having cut the audio off. I'm sorry. I'm going to just have to cut you off because you're, you're cutting out. And I'm um, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, think I, got some, I think I've got some. I i think got some of that story, but uh, unfortunately you're cutting out quite a bit, and uh, so I'm missing a fair amount of it. Okay. But, oh uh, I, I'll just, uh, so I'll just let me just um, give you my thoughts on, on these kinds of work conflicts. So I'll give you an example of one okay, that sure. – that happened with me. Um, okay. When I was sort of very new to the entrepreneurial world, I was giving a presentation to a, a big company that did X, and uh, I was giving it with a company that provide with a company that provided service Y, right? So, uh, and we'd worked out a deal with another company that provided service Y that they would give a big volume discount if they company the big company used their software or whatever, right? <laughs> And uh, I I mentioned, because I was so used to just giving this benefit um, in the presentation, that I told this company, we have a service provider that will give you a 50% discount if you use our software. While there was another service provider sitting in the room with me who'd gotten me into the meeting. Now, this was a pretty big faux pas, right? I mean, you should not advertise, like if somebody gets you into a meeting, you shouldn't advertise one of their competitors' lower rates at the same time. That That was bad on my part. Now, this guy got really mad at me. And afterwards, he gave me a real dressing down in the elevator on the way down. And I was uh, humiliated, and I was angry, and I was upset. And I was like, oh, this guy totally overreacted. And I was, uh, I was upset with him. Now, the reality, though, was that he was right. Uh, he, he was right. Now... If you focus on the way that people express something, then you can lose out on a lot of valuable information. You can lose out on a lot of useful information. Because a lot of people aren't very good at communicating in a peaceful and positive and encouraging way. Of course not. I mean, they've been raised by priests and public school teachers, right? (laughs) Of course they're not used to that. So my concern is that if you focus on the way in which someone is communicating rather than the content of what they're communicating, then in a sense, you can't hear the music over the noise. And the music can be good. It can be helpful and useful. So uh, I sort of had to sit there and, and think about it and say, okay, well, if I were in this person's position, I would feel really mad. Like if I brought someone into a meeting with a potential client, a big potential client, and they talked about my competitor's software as being cheaper and better, I'd be mad too. Now, I wouldn't express it in the way that this guy expressed it, and it wasn't a good good the way that he expressed it, but I can understand why he was upset and why he was angry. And the important thing, though, for me was that I, I needed to, and it took a while for me to get this, it was important for me not to translate his attack on me as an attack upon myself, right? That's, that's really important. You don't have direct control over how people communicate to you. I mean, you have some indirect control, right? So if you're more confident and you're more assertive, then bullies will steer clear of you, right? But you do have control... Over how you translate that to yourself, right? So what I said to myself afterwards, and this took a couple of days because I was I was young and new to the business world. As I said to myself, yeah, I made a mistake. That doesn't mean I'm a bad businessman. That doesn't mean that uh, I'm malicious or malevolent. I was just uh, doing the presentation a little bit on autopilot, and I just was not aware of and alive to the sensitivities within, uh, within the meeting, uh, people's needs and, and perspectives. So I'll just try to be more conscious of that. Uh, I made a mistake. It wasn't out of any malicious intent. The guy who got mad at me was kind of mean, pretty mean, and and I think there was some malicious intent there. That came from a place of frustration and hurt. So uh, you know, but I didn't want to translate that into. I didn't want to internalize his perspective so that it became my perspective. So it. In a sense, you want to work... I would suggest it's important to work on self-attack rather than worry about what other people are saying. Because nobody, nobody can make you attack yourself when you're an adult. When you're a kid, you have to adapt if you have abusers, blah, blah, blah. But when you're an adult, nobody... Can make you attack yourself that is something you have to do. you know the way that um, <laughs> the way that this sort of stuff works, and look it 's not easy, but the way that it works is it's sort of like you're you're boxing with someone, but all they can do is pretend to hit you right that 's the reality of communication when we 're adults so you 're in the ring and you're dancing back and forth and you 're sweating and your your abs are rippling you know, this is my fantasy right so you 're in there and and All the guy can do is go and pretend to hit you. Like the fist has to stop six inches from your nose. In order for him to score a knockout, you have to punch yourself, right? And that's what I really want to focus on uh, as far as that goes, that that you have to complete the punch yourself. So if somebody's pretending to hit you, which is all that this kind of verbal aggression really is, or even verbal abuse – you're the one who has to punch yourself in order for the blow to land. Nobody can give you a black eye when you're an adult. You can only punch yourself. And if you focus on other people, rather than focusing on how not to punch yourself, you will forever be at the mercy of, and you will forever try to have to try to control the actions of other people. Right? Because if every time... Somebody pretends to punch you, you punch yourself, and you don't notice that last bit where you punch yourself, then you will really think that they're punching you, and then you will have to control their behavior. You'll have to manage them. You'll have to focus on them. You'll have to deal with them. You'll have to calm them down. You'll have to appease them. You'll have to oppose them. You'll have to fight them. But the reality is that self-attack is punching yourself. And if you focus on that aspect of things, not only do you free yourself, but you can really free the other person as well. Uh, I, through this process, I ended up not being friends with the guy, but we did more business trips together and so on. And it was, uh, it was fine. He was, he was an okay guy. He, you know, he moved on. He was Italian. So this kind of uh, mood swing was perhaps cultural. Perhaps uh, he was going through menopause. I don't know. But uh it is not uh, uh it's not essential that you control the actions of other people it really is essential i would suggest that you focus on controlling your own propensity or habit of self-attack which came from your family in a way that i can completely understand but that is um uh, that is my suggestion dan sorry and i i can't even wait around for your response because your audio quality is so bad uh next time uh, we will uh, try just using the telephone, which may work better. So I'm um, sorry, but uh, uh, have a listen to this. If there's anything else, just shoot me an email. All right. Well, I think we will uh, wrap it up. Izzy's up. So, and it's actually shockingly sunny. Uh, just a reminder: if oh, the effects of being raised by a single mother. The effects of being raised by a single mother. That is a great question. But of course. I am going to read to you. I'm going to read to you a story. Are you all sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. I'm going to read to you from my novel. Because that is a uh, that is a good uh, that's a good question. I wrote yeah I wrote something about this in a novel. So just give me a sec. Let me pull it up, and uh, I think it's pretty uh, pretty useful. Everybody get your milk and your blanket. We're going to have a story. So this is a character from my novel, The God of Atheists. His name is uh, Gordon. He's a a protagonist. This isn't giving anything away. It's uh, it's pretty early in the novel. Uh, Gordon Marrow was not ugly, but he was very poorly groomed. It is a sad but true fact that boys brought up by single mothers are rarely dressed for sexual success. Perhaps their mothers feel that their own sexuality really messed up their lives and want to keep said temptation far from their sons. Or it may be a hatred of absent fathers avenged on the son's possibilities of attracting a mate. Either way, the profusion of bowl-cut hairdos, petroleum-based pants, thin t-shirts with little holes where the labels used to be, or dates on them more than six years old, jeans with no pockets on the asses, or God forbid stitched purple Saturns, does not bode well for the continuation of the bloodline. It's like a depressing descent. Two parents, one parent, no parent. Shorn of the tribal markers of success these boys often adopt a rather dispirited anti-materialism, scorning those who pay exorbitant prices for jeans or sneakers. The practical fact that goodwill cast-offs keep the cold away is not lost in them. The fact that they also keep the girls away is. No matter how intelligent these boys are, the dual nature of clothing, warmth and adornment seems completely beyond their grasp. Clothes exist to keep us warm. All else is vanity, is the natural attitude of unloved souls breaking free of conventional gravity and riding a helium updraft to the life of the mind. Their anti-biological approach sadly blinds them to the fact that they would not exist at all if their fathers had dressed the way they do. Gordon's future seemed completely preordained. No dating, vivid, random, too intense sexual attractions that frightened him more than motivated him, a slow strangling of sexual desire, reading comics and playing Warhammer-type board games well into his 30s, an inability to move away from his mother, an apartment filled with old newspapers plastic chairs, hamburger helper, and dust bunnies. But it was not to be. Gordon broke away from this quiet tribe of natural bachelors and dry librarians in a way he did not expect at all. Uh, so that's just a little bit. I didn't talk quite a bit about single, uh, being a son of a single mom. Of course, that's my experience too, right? So I uh, sort of wanted to mention that. Uh, upgrade to gold. You get the audiobook and PDF for free. It's uh. Uh, it's well worth it. I think it's a uh, it's a good uh, it's a, it's a good read. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a great book. So I hope that you uh, you will enjoy it if you if you get it. Well, I do believe. Oh yeah, yeah, right. So when the podcast awards go to the next stage of voting after open nominations on the seventeenth, I think listeners can vote every single day. You can vote every single day for um, uh, for free domain radio. And we can finally take that uh, Witch of Correctionism down, Grammar Girl, and put her on the level. Well, she's been on Oprah and I haven't, so um, I'm not holding my breath. But it is a very, good to, uh, it's a very good thing to vote. It's good to be on the list. All right. Well, thank you everybody so much for your continued support, your generosity. I hope that you enjoyed the audiobook I posted in the chat window. Please feel free to have a listen. Please feel free to let me know what you think. And uh, have yourselves an absolutely delightful, charming wonderful week and i will talk to you soon